Okay, welcome to another episode of Agony of Defeat. How's we it going, did it. Matt? We did it uh, two consecutive weeks or every other week. That's true. We're on a roll, Jonathan. We are, we are officially back. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I want to say happy birthday Thank to you. you. We're in the middle of November and you just celebrated a birthday. And I did. Samantha, how old do you think Jonathan is? Gotta be 25 going on 26. Good answer. I told you she was smart. You are so close. Never, ever answer that question, young people. Ever. No no good. He's thinking right now, I thought I looked 21. Somebody (laughs) recently told me they thought I was 70 years old. Oh, no, no, really? Oh, I'm sorry. Who was that person? You want to name them I will will not say. (laughs) Okay. The answer is 58. 58. All right. Very good. Well, this is going to come into play because we're going to talk about athletes uh, today from the from the 60s and the 70s, athletes that I have, frankly have very little memory about. I bet you have more. A little more. No memory of Bill Russell as a player. Right. Bill Walton a little bit long after he was in his prime. Well, that's what we wanted to talk about today. We've been noting that we're in this sort of golden era of sport documentaries, kind of a renaissance sparked by The Last Dance, uh, Michael Jordan, which... Jonathan just reminded me that we did a podcast about. We did. You can go back and listen to that. A few yeah. years ago. And you said yeah. we sounded smart, but the audio was bad. Yeah. <laughs> but that, we were on Zoom, right? We were on Zoom. That was yeah. COVID. And I mean, I'm sure if you watched The Last Dance when it came out, it just, if you love sports, there were zero sports going on. And that documentary came no, around it, and just saved It, it, it was like an oasis in a desert yeah. when that came And out. so I didn't even yeah. care. I know there are a lot of criticisms about it, but it was just like sports porn. I was like, just, just, just yeah, bring yeah, it to yeah. me. Yeah. This is so good. And it was good. It, it was, was really good. Enjoyable. But it, it, it sparked a whole movement of very powerful athletes kind of telling their own stories, being in charge of their own stories. I'm watching the uh, Beckham uh, documentary on Netflix right now, which I am just going to recommend to you. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I saw it on Netflix and I thought, eh, I don't really want to watch it. But that, That's what I thought yeah, too. And then yeah. yesterday I was home by myself and when I'm home by myself, that's when I get to watch sports. <laughs> so I turned it on and before I knew what had happened, I watched three hours of okay. it, one hour to go. And it was fascinating. And boy, is it an indictment of football culture in Britain. Less oh, David Beckham, but just the way that guy was 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 treated. I think you and I were talking about this briefly. You know, I wasn't really interested in that guy at the time, or maybe I was, but I maybe I was just jealous of David Beckham at the time. But I wanted nothing. I didn't want to follow him. I didn't want to follow his marriage. It's riveting, Jonathan. Okay. So okay. check it out. Yeah. And we, I, I told you that I, I know I'm a compromised Yankee fan, but the seven-part Derek Jeter documentary, I was surprised how good it was. Seven? How long is each part? <laughs> Maybe an hour. Got it. So, so you were just reliving World Series glory. Yeah, okay. Well, okay. Until, I will watch it. And Until the point where I was reliving some very painful some moments. Some very painful moments, yeah. In Yankee fan history. But Jeter is actually a bright guy who was known in his career for saying absolutely nothing. Right. And on this in this documentary, he actually had things to say. Okay, good. So, so yeah. I will check it out. You check out the Beckham yeah. one, and we'll okay. and we'll check back in we'll, when we're we'll, we'll reconvene. Well, yes. we want to talk about two recent documentaries, two two basketball documentaries. There's the Bill Russell uh, Legend series. I guess it was just two episodes, two episodes. that was on on yeah. Netflix. 
And then the four episodes about Bill Walton that was done by Steve James of, of Hoop Dreams yes, fame. And so yes. if Steve James is doing something on Bill Walton, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. And I enjoyed both of them. Maybe we can talk about them as documentaries and talk about Russell and Walton as, as people, yeah, and as yeah. political figures. Yeah, so why don't, why don't we start with Walton? Oh, okay. We're going to um, do this in reverse chronological we're gonna, order. We're going to do this in reverse chronological I feel like Russell deserves... His own sort of special place. Okay, although I gotta yeah. say, I'm, yeah. I, I'm even more of a Walton fan after watching this documentary. I always was, but right. even more now. You, you, you and Walton went to the same school. We were both UCLA yes. guys. We're both yes. UCLA greats, some people would, would say. I, I, Bill Walton is an announcer, which is something the documentary focuses on. Yeah. Always sort of drove me crazy. Yeah, yeah, I'm... But then I read, his autobi- I read his autobiography a few years ago, which begins with him describing being in a level of pain yeah. around 12 or 15 years ago that left him lying on the floor literally for a year and a half unable to get up yeah. and wanting to not live anymore. These are from his foot injuries, I from assume, his, and then it just his moves foot, up. back, back everything. everything. Yeah. So I developed tremendous sympathy for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I now, I now see him through that prism, and so I'm... And the documentary, even as we'll discuss, he's a persnickety guy, is t- very compelling. Well, and, and another thing about him as an announcer who I don't love uh, listening to, uh, you know, I know that his announcing, his sort of, uh, his, uh, the way he just says everything with gusto and with force is one of the ways that he overcame his debilitating yes. stutter. Yes. And so I think that's an interesting uh, story the, about the, Bill Walton the, as well. The footage, so Bill Walton arrived in UCLA in, was it 1970? Yeah. And first played, I guess, in 1971. Yeah, Because right. freshmen couldn't play freshmen back then. Freshmen still couldn't play. Was yeah. a superstar, one of the greatest college players of all time. We can talk a little bit more about his college career. Well, let's talk about that right now. That, okay. that, that UCLA footage is amazing. amazing. And I, I've never seen a lot of that. Yeah, me neither. That yeah. footage. Yeah. And you realize what a just a special player he was, an amazing passer. Exceptional. The, the outlet yeah. passing, the outside shooting. 6'11 players back then did not have his mobility, athleticism, yeah. Yeah. skill level. You were basically just... You know, kind of a clunky guy in the middle. Yeah. If you were seven feet tall, and he completely broke that. I know, and he. I mean, it's not like he got people to forget about Lou Alcindor, who was yeah, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But the fact that he yeah. came right after Alcindor, what an embarrassment of riches for so for so UCLA. so. I, I look this up. So, it, I know Matt. You know this. UCLA holds the, the men's all-time record for consecutive wins. They won eighty-eight games in a row. Right. Um, Walton won his first 73 games in college. Right. He lost four games his senior year. That's right. Including yeah. in the, was that the National final? Semi- semifinal National to, semi- to, 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 North, N- to NC State. NC State, which is in Greensboro. So I'm saying asterisk as a, as a UCLA fan. <laughs> and because of that. A, sem- a semi-home game, a, you're saying? A semi-home game. Yeah. He considers his college basketball career to be a total failure. Because, as, it, because he lost his final game. Because he lost his final game right. and he lost four games the, right. in, the entire time. Okay, but the year before 1973, right. when UCLA won its seventh consecutive national championship 
in the finals against Jeez. Memphis, yeah. Bill Walton took 22 shots, yeah. and he hit 21 of them. Total failure. He missed <laughs> one <laughs> shot. <laughs> no, I know. So. It, it, it's an incredible... The, the footage is wonderful. Yes. How about the footage? If you haven't seen it yet, what's the name of the documentary? The, the, the Luckiest Man Alive. The Luckiest Man it's Alive. It's an ESPN 30 for 30 four-part documentary. Yeah. And it's, so. it's, it's great. It's riveting. Um, we can talk about some of the... Some of the different parts, but the, the, the Grateful Dead plays a key role in the documentary, which we'll talk a little bit because about. Because they but, play a key role in his life. Yes, um, yes. The footage of him as a UCLA student protesting the Vietnam War, and the, the chilling footage of UCLA students just being out in public, walking through their campus, protesting the war, and the LAPD comes in with their sticks and their hats to yes. just beat the crap out of them. Yes. The United States in the early 1970s was a, I mean, you know, it, it's a pretty weird place now, but it was a weird and scary place back then. One of the first podcasts we did, Matt, back in 2016 was on that incredible OJ Made in America documentary. Yeah, right. And an important part of that story was the ruthlessness and brutality of the LAPD going right. back decades. Yeah leading to this sort of sense of catharsis when O.J., quote-unquote, beat the police. So, right, right. So just to your point about that, their reputation, William Parker, I think, was yeah. the longtime police chief That's was right. such a monster. And then Daryl Gates followed, yeah, and yeah, followed his, yeah. his lead. Yeah, so I found that stuff riveting, and as much as I love the UCLA stuff, I had not seen a lot of that Portland Trailblazer yeah, footage, and yeah. that stuff was especially riveting. Amazing. So, so he was the first pick in the 1974 draft right. by Portland, which was a recent expansion team. They just started like four years before. They were terrible. And he spent most of his first two or three seasons, as would be a recurring theme in his career, injured. Right, because he was a vegetarian. Because he was a vegetarian. Well, that, that's yeah. what people thought, people right? I mean, let's be so honest. Being a vegetarian back in the 1970s was was weird. It, it was weird. And it, it, was, it would be weird now if an NBA center right. announced that he was a vegetarian and was right. hurt all the time. But it was it was weird, and it was also a very clearly political statement. Right. About And reflecting his identity with the anti-war movement. Yeah. He housed at one point fugitives from the FBI. <laughs> okay, so that part of the story, I knew a little bit about uh -huh. this, but th here's why you need to watch this documentary. The episode about Bill Walton, his political activism, his relationship with Jack Scott, who I knew a little bit about, yeah. this kind of uh, radical, I mean, it's radical, this, this, this leftist sports sociologist who was suggesting in the mid-1970s that perhaps sports should be about fun you know, rather than just about and, wealth and about oppression. And at one point hid Patricia Hearst, the daughter of the newspaper's tycoon. Was Wayne that ever Hearst. actually confirmed? I, I think I, it was. I, I, I couldn't think, quite I get the story. I think at some point they drove across country together. Yeah. So while she was on the run from the FBI. Patty Hearst was known as yeah. Tanya then, a member of the SLA. Yeah. She yeah. was Robin Banks. And I don't quite understand why Jack Scott was necessarily I, I harboring don't I don't the members of the SLA. But I think I'm probably on his side on but this one. But that Bill Walton, a young basketball superstar, was openly connected with that milieu. Yeah. It's, it's unimaginable. <laughs> Today. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think equally yeah. unimaginable then why a lot of people didn't like Bill Walton, this yes. this long-haired, red-headed, vegetarian, 
often injured critic yes. of the Vietnam War hippie who played for the Portland Trailblazers. I think a lot of people were predisposed not to like Walton. So, to a, a comment, one more comment about his politics, and we can talk more about his basketball career in Portland. Dave Zirin, the great political sports writer. Friend of the show. Very much friend of the show. Yep. Episode from a couple of years ago. Check that out. He wrote a column after the Walton documentary in which he criticized Walton because Walton said in the documentary, you know, I just have mainstream political views. I, good. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about that. That's my most, I think that's the most interesting line in the whole documentary. So I love that line. Yeah. Because what I thought he was saying was, I don't know why anybody thought I was a radical just because I thought we shouldn't be carpet bombing another yeah. country, Vietnam. Like, he was trying to say my views, I'm an American, I believe in America, therefore, I don't think we should be doing these things. Why isn't that mainstream? Yeah, that, well, that's, that is how I interpreted him, him characterizing himself that way. I did as well. And to his point, by 1968, most Americans... More Americans opposed the war in Vietnam than were for the war in, in Vietnam. So he was in the majority. Uh, so I thought he was, I, I appreciated that point. But I also think he was downplaying just how radical it was for a superstar athlete. And in particular, let's yes. be honest, there were black athletes who were speaking out against the war in oh, Vietnam. For sure. for sure. But not that many white athletes who were doing it. And Bill Walton was, yes. was like, doing I, Can it. we even think of any? I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe um, a couple of football players. And this is a recurring thing, right? When Colin Kaepernick took a knee, how many white players yeah. took a knee with him? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so just that storyline is fascinating. Just the basketball stuff, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about his time in Portland. Do you remember the 1977 NBA Finals between the Trailblazers and the 76ers? Because I, I started following basketball I, two years later. I followed it, but I don't remember. I think it was too late for me to be watching on television. Right. So, And maybe you're a little young to appreciate the racial narrative I definitely of this. was too young to appreciate the racial narrative. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. so, yeah, so say something about well, it. Well, so... I started paying attention to the NBA in 1979. I guess the finals were the Seattle... Did you know that there were once NBA teams called the Seattle Supersonics <laughs> and the Washington Bullets? Because they were in back-to-back -back finals. And I remember one, the, the one that, that the Supersonics won. So that had to be 79. Was, the, yes, the and, Bullets won in 78 and the Sonics returned the favor in 79. And then, of course, the next year the NBA blew up because Magic Johnson went against Dr. J. And you know, right, right, everything right, changed. Right. The, the, the contrast... Well, I wasn't there at the time, so I'm interested in the way that they talked about it in this documentary and the way the basketball historians talk about it. Uh, and I wish Bill Walton had talked about it in this documentary. Portland was kind of racially coded as the white team, right? Portland's a... It, it's got to be the whitest city in the NBA. Right, um, right. And the team had a great white superstar. And other white players. And other great white, white yeah. players. But the Sixers... What uh, just loaded with amazing African American players, but not just African American players, players that you just had to look at and say, that's black basketball. Yes. Daryl Dawkins. Daryl Dawkins. Nicknamed Chocolate Thunder. Dr. Yes. J. Dr. J. Uh, 
Lloyd B, a.k.a. World B, yes. free. Yes. And George McGinnis. Cal, who, Caldwell Jones. Caldwell Jones. All these great, I don't even know how great of a player George McGinnis was, but I am told he was, he was an amazing a, I player. remember him back in his ABA days, actually, and yeah. he was great. And so anyone coming out of the ABA is kind of associated with the black basketball aesthetic from the era. So that Sixers team was like a like an all-star black team in the 1970s going up. So the the Matt, the this, racial narrative had to have been so, fierce. So this is reminding me of our, I don't mean to keep referencing our old episodes, but this is reminding me do of it. our... Do it, yeah, our we're, we're the only ones who remember us. <laughs> that's so, true. So someone's got to do it. Yeah. Um, us and our 11 followers on Instagram. Yeah. What Samantha right. has told us. Yeah. That, that's growing. So, yeah. As so we speak. We did the Rocky documentary yeah. with the inverted racial hierarchy. Oh, and that's 77. That's that, right. So we've yeah. got Philadelphia. Yeah, what a year. And we've got the dominant black boxer Apollo Creed and the scrappy yeah. white boxer Rocky. John, so we need there's to, an interesting parallel here, I feel 1977, like. correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that Reggie Jackson in the World Series? That is his, when, the, the, that the, is that. the great black yes. superstar yes. In, in, yes. in baseball. Yeah. Man, we need to write a book, like 1977, the year sports changed. Yeah, the, the, I like it. There's a I lot like going it. on there. All, All right, right. We'll, we'll do that after okay, the show. Quick comment about Dr. J. Sure. I grew up in New York City. The first player I loved was Dr. J yeah. when he was a member of the New York Nets and the ABA. Yeah. And he was so good. He was transcendent. Yeah, <laughs> Transcendent, the, dominant. I mean, think about Dr. J with his magnificent afro and the way that he just... And Dr. J, well, he wasn't Dr. J in college because he couldn't dunk when he was in college. But oh, right. No dunking that, was allowed. No dunking was Talk allowed. about a waste of a precious natural resource. People did not understand that Julius Irving... And Matt, why was no dunking allowed in college? Because right? of Lou Alcindor at UCLA and the domination of the black athlete. Right. In, in, so. so the NCAA, that ever-progressive organization, mm -hmm. actually banned the dunk for a decade. For a decade because of the great black So David black Thompson... Players. Also, that, yeah. the spectacular star of the NC State team that in 1974 beat Bill Walton also could never dunk, even though he could jump through the roof, basically. Yeah, so then these guys go into pro basketball. Like when you when you watch Dr. J in the ABA, you know, with his afro flying through the air, you just knew that sports had changed, yeah. right? American yeah. sports yeah. had changed, and for the better, because yeah. these yeah. are true. So, so Philadelphia, players. the Sixers are loaded. Yeah, they are considered the. Prohibitive favorite. They're the super team of the era. Right, right. When they meet Portland in the NBA Finals that year, it's Portland's first time ever making the playoffs. Right. They're a recent expansion team. Um, but that Portland team is was awesome to watch. Well, the narrative, if you go back and look at the sports writing, and which I have, it's about how Portland is a team... And the Sixers are just a collection of individuals, right. selfish basketball players, which is some which, serious racial coding. For sure. And, it, and it's something that Bill Walton repeats over and over again in the documentary. In the documentary. We were a team. They were a collection of individuals. I'm sorry, but when you have Dr. J, why don't you play one-on-one -on -one basketball? When your players are better than yeah. the other team's players, yeah. that's good basketball. Yeah. So I, I was a little... And they did make the NBA Finals and win the first two games. It's not like they were... It's not like they, yeah. weren't, they weren't good. And then there was that, in, that amazing fight between yeah. Lucas and Dawkins yes. and Brent Musburger, the announcer. I, I, it's my... My favorite part when he says it's Dawkins and Lewis, or um, uh, Dawkins and um, Dawkins and Lucas, Dawkins yeah. and Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. It's Dawkins and Lucas. Somebody do something. <laughs> like <laughs> that's right. I'll get in. I'll get in between these right. these two guys. No, 
yeah, but that was sort of seen as the um, as as the vindication of Bill Walton's career, and that was Walton at his best in his career, Walton don't you think? At his best, yes. It was his fourth season in the league. He was only like 24, 25 years old. He wasn't a legitimately incredible player. Yeah. Um, he led the he led the NBA in rebounding and block shots that season. Yeah, unbelievable. And was just fantastic. Um, yeah. So, John, and I was looking at the numbers of um, TV viewerships of pro oh, basketball yeah, in okay. the 70s, yeah. and there is this correlation that's very easy to make. Over the course of the 1970s, the NBA gets blacker and blacker. More and yeah. more black players go. The NBA uh, pro basketball was uh, half black, half white at the start of the 70s. It was three quarters black by, by, by the end of the 70s. So as the NBA or as pro basketball is getting blacker, viewership goes down mm-hmm. and down and down. And it spikes in one year. Viewership spikes in 1977. Interesting. And you think it's... Be- I mean, look, it's the merger year, yeah, right? The yeah, ABA. Yeah, so right. suddenly Bill Walton right. and Kareem and Dr. J are yeah. all there. Yeah. But do you think it's because people were galvanized by this great white player? It, it, am I oversimplifying it? No, no. It? It, well, it could be. I mean, it is true that the Celtics were winning, still winning, right? They won the previous year. Right. Yeah, with some good with white some players. From Dave Cowens, John Havlicek. Yeah. Um, but th- I think there's probably something about both the starkness of the racial coding that you're describing. Yeah. And I think, well... Yeah, I think Walton was, you know, was must-watch television. You and I have, have I, we have talked before, we're far from alone in saying this, um, that Walton is one of the great what-ifs in sports history. Yes. Because he was such a fantastically talented player yeah. whose career was absolutely destroyed by injuries. Between, I looked this up, in the four seasons between ages 26 and 29... So this is a couple of years after the championship. Right. He played a total of 14 games in four seasons. Oh, my gosh. In his age 26 to 29 seasons. Three seasons he missed entirely. One season he played 14 games. Wow. And he was never remotely the same after that. Yeah. He did have this one great sort of swan song with the Celtics. With the Celtics, yeah. In 1985-1986 where they were a dominant team, won the NBA title. And he came off the bench and was sixth man of the year. Right. And it was like the first time he'd really played in like five or six years. Well, he was down in San Diego in front of Clippers for a while. Yes, he Talk was. about basketball purgatory. Yeah, yeah. Did you know there used to be a team called the San Diego Clippers <laughs> yeah. as well? Fun fact, by the way, when Bill Walton was in Boston in 1986, and we mentioned that Bill Walton, one of the great loves of his life is the Grateful Dead. Yeah. He became very, several of the band members were in the documentary. The first... Grateful Dead concert, Matt, I ever went to was in Providence in early 1986. And who was there that night? Uh, the seven-foot redhead seven standing foot redhead in the front. Was, was there. Unmistakably, <laughs> it was Bill Walton when he was on that Celtics team. All right, and I'm telling people, so I'm talking to Jonathan Weiler right now, and he's got short hair. He looks very respectable. <laughs> you can Google him. You can look at his faculty picture. But I've seen pictures of Jonathan Weiler from an earlier era. Yes. How long was your hair? Uh, I had hair well past my shoulders. Well past your shoulders. Yeah, for, was... for, from my mid twenties to my late thirties. Yeah, yeah. Don't let your kids listen to the Grateful <laughs> Dead. That's, That's right. That's I've, right. I may or may not have gone to a few Grateful right. Dead shows myself. I can't remember. All right. So to I guess to segue to Bill Russell. Yeah. We could start the segue by saying that Bill Walton himself says that Bill Russell was his all-time hero. That's right. Uh, an incredible basketball player. 
and an extraordinary figure off the court. Yeah, and the I did not enjoy the Bill Russell documentary as much as I enjoyed the Bill Walton documentary. And w- one reason is that Bill Russell's not featured in it, like in, in the way that, right. that Bill Walton well, is. Well, he had passed away. Right, he had just passed away. And so there was Jeffrey Wright, the great actor, sort of voiced yeah. reading from his book. And he does a nice job with that. And he yeah. does. And, and boy, Bill Walton has some, or Bill Russell has some powerful quotes. Um, I also didn't like, I didn't need to hear Chris Paul and uh-huh. Steph Curry. And you J- know, Jalen Rose. Jalen Rose. Just sort of, well, he was better than Paul. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, yeah. you know my thoughts about Chris yeah, Paul across yeah, the board. Yes, yeah. I don't need to hear Chris Paul say that Bill Russell was unapologetically himself. Uh-huh. Because what does that, that actually mean? Yeah. But boy, some of the footage also, there's a wealth of footage there that I hadn't really seen. You know, yes, Russell's maybe, a hard guy to, to, to wrap your brain about uh, around in a, in a basketball sense because... He wasn't a tremendously skilled offensive player. No, he. In fact, he looked awkward yeah, it, shooting the basketball. Kind of his entire career. Yes, he never really got better at free throw shooting or anything like that. But that's if you don't know the Bill Russell story, that's not what he's known for. He's right. known for his defense. He's known for his rebounding, uh, and he's just known for being the ultimate winner—the guy who made everyone around him better. And just as UCLA was winning national championship after national championship, the Celtics were winning NBA title one after another. How many fingers does Bill Russell have? Not enough for the number of championships. He's got 10 (laughs) fingers. He's got 11 rings. Plus two more in college. Plus two with USF. Right. They went on a 55-game winning streak. So he, he won his final two years in college. He was drafted by the Celtics. He went and won a gold medal for he the went U.S. Won a gold medal, yeah, right in Australia. In Australia, it? so he didn't go into the NBA until January right. of and, that year. And then, the, and then the Celtics won nine of the first ten years he was in the league. And the only time they didn't win, he was hurt. He right. was hurt in the playoffs. Right. So they and including eight in a row. Yeah, unreal. And then they they lost in 1967 to Will Chamberlain, who was built. Will Chamberlain could never beat Bill Russell. He That's right. Finally, did in nineteen sixty seven, and that was Russell's first year as head coach of right. the team. Right. The first black head coach. First black head in, coach in the NBA in, in professional sports. It, well, it's certainly baseball it's and certainly and baseball. football. Well, it depends. I mean, you can say Fritz Pollard was a head coach oh, in the yeah. NFL way back in way the twenties, but no, pretty much. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that's that's yeah. fair enough. Right. So Russell lost that year to Chamberlain, and then in sixty eight and sixty nine, he won. Twice, so thirteen years in the NBA, eleven championships, two as a head coach, incredible, plus the two in college. Yes. All right. So how do we even begin to talk about this magnificent figure? I mean, we talk about him as a basketball player, talk about him as a political figure, as a as a civil rights icon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that's what I want to talk about. What, What I was struck by. Okay, so you're watching this documentary and you hear what Bill Russell is saying about uh, the problem of race in the United States, that problem being racism. You, you hear the stories about Bill Russell at the March of Washington in 1963 or um, this interview that he gives in Sports Illustrated in January of 1964 where he says, I don't really care about the white fans. You know, I, I refuse to be nice to the, to the, to the kiddies. Um, when he was saying that in January of 1964, no one else was doing that. Right. Now we, we have this narrative in our head that Muhammad Ali comes along 
and just changes everything. And the other black athletes follow him. But he was saying this at a time. Ali was talking. Right. He, but he was just boasting. He was talking about how pretty he is, how good he is. Russell was saying these things first. So Ali, Cassius Clay changed his name to Ali later in 1964. Is right. that correct? Yeah, it would have been in right. late February right. of, so, of So, 64. I mean, just to your point, Russell is... And Russell, as you said, was in 1963 at the March on Washington, had traveled to the South in 1963 to join civil rights. Okay, I didn't know that from yeah. that documentary. He yeah. was down there during Freedom Summer putting on basketball clinics in Mississippi. I, I, boy, I wish there was footage of that. I, I, I wanted to know more when about that. When civil rights workers are getting killed in Mississippi. When they're getting killed and buried in earthen dams. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So he, and, and he, he played, of course, his entire career in Boston. And what I think is interesting about his perspective is he, of course, knows he goes down to the South to, you know, participate in the civil rights movement down there, but also knows firsthand and intimately how racist Boston is. Yeah, well, it's something he endures his entire career there. Let's review. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana. So he's born in the Jim Crow South. And his family has to flee the Jim Crow South when his his mother says something to a white police officer who's who's harassing This her. is in the 1930s. This is in the 1930s. So they get out and they go to Oakland, California, which is where I'm from, my hometown. And to this day, Oakland, California is a rigidly racially segregated city. You know, so he grows up in segregated Oakland, goes to McClyman's High School, where Kirk Flood went to high school, uh-huh. where Paul Silas Went to high school where Frank Robinson wow. went. To, yeah, McClyman's High School. Someone needs to write a book. Maybe someone probably has written a book hey. about uh-huh. McClyman's High School. Yeah, and then he goes to an all-white university. Pretty much, there were you know three black starters on that USF team. What's it, what was a Jesuit school? Jesuit school, University of San Francisco. There were there were alums of the university who wrote letters to the head coach saying these black players are not representative of of, of who we are representative of our school so they shouldn't be be playing uh-huh. so he faces that type of racism and then what do we say about about boston yeah i i mean there, there's some incidents that are recounted in the documentary that, horrible that i don't incidents. even really want to repeat yeah um, but it, one of the interesting quotes from him in the documentary is that i play for the celtics i do not play for boston that's right which he had this, and, and I think one of the things that I'm so struck by about him is his moral clarity is, I'm sort of blown away. It's a good him. way to put it. Um, he's just, I, I, you know, where, I don't know where that came from, perhaps his parents, <laughs> but he's, he's just, he's just except, exceptional in that regard. For example, he was first elected into the Hall of Fame in 1975. He refused to be inducted because he did not think that he should be the first black player inducted into the Hall of Fame. 44 years later, in 2019, in a quiet private ceremony, he finally accepts his Hall of Fame ring because he's at that point deemed it to have done what it should have done 40 plus years before. I mean, just feel like his entire life was guided by this just quite extraordinary set of principles. The Celtics and Boston are so complicated, you know, trying to make make sense of the, well, 
Boston. It's the it's the cradle of the abolitionist movement. Right. And then it becomes the symbol of white backlash in the nineteen right. seventies. Right. And the home of the iconic liberal university, Harvard University. Yeah, which 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 when he called Boston a, a flea market of racism, he said there are a lot of different types of racists, and one type are these white radical chic yeah. intellectual. It was interesting that he, he yes, he he called them out. I I, yeah. I found yeah. that very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are different ways to be racist yeah. in this city. Yeah. Boston is the NBA team that first drafted a black player. Um, they're the team that drafted Bill Russell. Maybe we can talk about that the brilliant Red Hour package. Uh, maneuverings on, on, on draft day. The first team, first NBA team to have an all-black starting five, yes. all-black coach, yet the Celtics weren't popular with the people of Boston really in the 1960s. Is it because Boston right, was... The, the what, Red Sox and Bruins were much more popular. Yeah, is it right? because Boston's a hockey town or because this was a black team and so people in Boston didn't... You know, and then Havlicek and Cowens come along, and Larry Bird. Larry Bird comes, and now suddenly Boston is is a right. Bird and it, McHale make, is this, a basketball make the time. Celtics the toast of the town. So, I, yeah, what do you do with to, with, to, with to Boston? add just to the, the 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 complex racial story you're describing? You referred to Red Auerbach. It's worth saying a little more about him. Yeah, this is a Jewish guy yeah. who becomes you know the the mastermind of the of one of the great sports dynasties of all time who himself was very committed, correct me if I'm wrong, to racial equity, certainly compared to any of his peers. Right? Yes, and, and yeah. certainly in the world of basketball. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. if it helps me win, I will yeah. be colorblind. Yeah. And look, yeah. I mean, at the very least, we want that from our sports yeah. figures, well, at the very least. And, and, and to Auerbach's credit, he was insistent on Russell becoming his coach. Right. And it's not right. Auerbach retires right. after the 1966 season, right. I guess. And Russell is the guy he wants, which... Be- well, and because he knows no one can coach Bill Russell. <laughs> like Bill Russell. <laughs> like, like Bill, right. but no right. one can, can, right. can handle this guy. Jonathan, I'm sure I've told you this, this story before, but you know, here at the um, history department at, at UNC, I have a colleague named Karen Auerbach. And when Karen teaches Jewish history and the history of the Holocaust here, and when I met her many years ago, she said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I do sports history. She said, oh, I wonder if you've ever heard of my Uncle Red. <laughs> I'm like, Red Auerbach? Yes, I've heard of your Uncle Red. I mean, it's like asking a political historian if you've ever heard of Abraham Lincoln or, or FTR or something along those lines. I, I, you had told me and I'd forgotten. So we're this close to greatness yeah, in the yeah, history yeah, department yeah, yeah, here at, here at yeah. UNC. Well, I, I think about what Auerbach does in this 56 draft. The Celtics have the third pick. I think that's right. Okay. They have the third pick okay. in the draft. I've actually got the okay. the, the order yeah. here. Yeah. The, the, the Rochester Royals are drafting first. Okay. And so he calls, Auerbach calls the president of the Royals and says, well, you don't want to draft this Russell guy because he's going to ask for a lot of money. Okay. He just won a couple okay. of national championships. Okay. <laughs> and in exchange for not drafting Bill Russell, uh, the Icecapades were owned by Walter Brown, who owns the Celtics. He said, we'll give you two free weeks of the Icecapades in your arena if you don't draft Bill Russell. So the guy's like, great, this is the best deal ever. I won't draft Russell. He knows that the St. Louis Hawks aren't going to draft him because they're an all-white team still in 1956. Oh, yes, yes. They do not have... And when they win the title in 58, Eight, I guess it yes, is, yes. they're the last all-white team to win an NBA championship. So he... 
he, he maneuvers Russell with the third pick, and he drafts uh, Tommy Heinsohn also in oh, that amazing. in that draft. And, and the Celtics dynasty, he'd already got Koozie, and then he's going to see that Sam Jones and Casey Jones are better than everyone else thinks. You're reminding me of another set of maneuverings he pulled off in 1980 and 1981, yeah. where he managed to draft Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and trade for Robert Parrish yeah. in exchange for the rights, basically, to Joe Barry Carey. Oh, as a Warrior fan, that <laughs> one hurts. Yeah, we got Joe Barry so, Cares, as we used to call so him. So this is, this is 30 years apart, hour back, working his magic. Yeah, so he's obviously a basketball genius. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to say the Celtics dynasty is, is, is all his doing, obviously. Because yeah. it's Russell, right? I mean, Absolutely. Koozie is there. Before Russell gets there, but never wins. Yep. Russell shows up and they start winning. Auerbach yep. retires, they keep winning. I and mean, Kuzi retires and they keep winning, right? Absolutely. Yes. He's yes. the guy. He's, He's the, the linchpin. He, 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 and then happens? when Russell retires, I mean, they a few years later, they started winning again. But they went five years without a championship. But it goes away. It goes away. Yeah, so you know when um, Russell was coming out of USF, the Harlem Globetrotters wanted to meet with them because uh-huh. they wanted to meet with all the great basketball talent. Uh-huh. And Russell tells this story. Is this in the documentary? I'm trying to remember. This is yeah. um, it's in his, his one of his autobiographies that he, he meets with Abe Saperstein of the of the um, Globetrotters. And Saperstein doesn't even talk to him. He talks to Phil Phil Wolpert, his 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 agent uh-huh. or his his, uh-huh. his coach uh-huh. who's serving as his agent. And Russell, this immensely proud man, uh, thinks to himself, you want to talk to Wolpert, sign Wolpert. You know, I'm not signing. The Harlem Globetrotters were offering him more money than the Boston Celtics were. And and they did sign Will Chamberlain in this era. And Will Chamberlain enjoyed his time with the Harlem Globetrotters. He said it was the only year of basketball that he ever actually enjoyed. I find it impossible to imagine the immensely serious and proud Bill Russell clowning in a Harlem Globetrotters uniform. No, that would not be his way. It just wouldn't have worked. Matt, there are a couple of quotes from... He had two autobiographies. Yeah. Um, The second one is called Second Wind. I don't remember the the first one. Uh, Up for Glory. Up for Glory. Yeah. Okay. So um, I just wanted to read a couple of them because he's just... Second Wind co-authored by Taylor Branch. Uh, Amazing. Yeah, UNC historian and... Pulitzer Prize winning for, a biographer of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, and wrote an article in 2011 on the NCAA that changed the entire debate. About that changed, and that why do we have NIL? Well, we have NIL for a number of reasons. But, but he's one big Taylor Branch is one of them. So I just wanted to read a couple of quotes sure. because he just he his writing is so eloquent and he's very he's very quotable. Um, I just there's there's one at one point he's talking about this is when. Matt, he was talking about phony, radical, chic racists. Okay, is that, the, is that um, his among, among Among the racists that he identified. Um, corrupt political racists, as he says, quote, send them back to Africa racists. Right. Um, and then Russell says colorblind meant black people being invisible. Yeah. So he's, he's, he just, again, he just had this very powerful... Uh, there's another quote. This is, this is less political, more about basketball. I love yeah. this one. Uh, this is from Second Wind. He says, if you could bottle all the emotion, and this really goes to your point about he could never play for the Globetrotters. He took the game so seriously. Right. That's something that he and Walton so clearly 
have in common. They're just fierce competitive. But Walden's not even close to Russell. I mean, no one's close to. Oh no, no, no! I like, agree. Russell's sort of like Jordan before Jordan, yeah, but yeah. but but Jordan, who speaks, you know, they have the yeah. same psychotic need to win. <laughs> but Russell also has this, and I'm going to you know, putting this in quotes: yeah. psychotic need to be himself and tell people what he thinks, and to and to make the world a better place. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. when for yeah. a black person in the 1960s. Yeah. That was a crazy idea. So here's a great quote just about basketball. He says, if you could bottle all the emotion in a basketball game, there would be enough hate to fight a war and enough love to prevent one. <laughs> just, yeah, that one washed right over yeah, me. I, I don't just, really, I, I really like remember that. that. Yeah. So he's a philosopher as well. He's a philosopher, yes. Yeah, you know, I kind of came out thinking about both of these documentaries as Walton really seems like he's at peace with himself. At, at, yes. at, at this yes. part in his yes. career. I mean, th- there are those moments where... I Steve... mean, really having been to hell and back. Exactly, in this case. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Russell comes out the other side of this documentary and you feel like he's just at war with American culture mm-hmm. and at war with American society. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's just what happens when you're a black man and you're in the NBA from 1956 yeah. to 1970. I mean, talk about tumultuous years and to be right in the middle of it. Yeah. Really different experiences yeah. of both of these guys. Yeah. Um, Bill Walton, uh, they quote him at the end of the Russell documentary uh, saying about Russell, you've done your job, the rest is up to us. Ah. Which I thought was a nice sort of Way to conclude. That. I think so. I think it's yeah. probably a nice way for us to conclude yeah. this. Except we have more, Jonathan. Yes. Uh, we are starting. You and I are big sports trivia fans. But one of these days, we're going to open up a bar or convince someone <laughs> who owns a bar to let us have a sports trivia do, night. Do a I don't know. Yeah, yeah that yeah, would be yeah, they'd be yeah, really fun. Yeah, our, yeah. our our eleven Instagram followers <laughs> will all be in the audience. <laughs> yes, no. Yes. No doubt. Samantha thinks that's a good idea. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, Samantha Rubin is our crack uh, publicist and producer. We're going to thank her right now yes. for, for, for doing this. Uh, she has also set up our Instagram account. It is agony.of.defeat. And you can go to that Instagram account and you can try to answer the following very wicked sports trivia question that I'm going to let Jonathan ask. Okay, so there are five schools in the United States, five universities, that have both a president and a Super Bowl winning quarterback as alumni. As alumni. We're going to front you one. Yeah, the most recent one, I guess, The most right? recent one. Once Joe Biden won the presidency in 2020, and though not everybody recognizes that victory. <laughs> yeah. The University of Delaware, yeah. where Joe Biden is an alum, and Joe Flacco, the Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. And I don't recognize that victory because it was against the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> but, okay. Yes. So They're both in the record so book. Th- that is the fifth and most recent school to join this amazing club. Right. And our question for our listeners is, who are which are the other four schools? I think we want the other schools... Let's make it harder. 
Okay. We want the schools and we want the president's names okay. and the quarterback and, and names. The Is that fair? fair? Yes, that's definitely fair. Okay, come yeah. on, because yeah. we know people were going to yeah. cheat. Yeah, 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 anyway. yeah, yeah. But come yeah. on, people, respect the trivia. See if you can figure it out. That's Put your right. answers in the Instagram, in our Instagram account, and the first person to do it will get something. Well, what they'll get is a shout out from us on the next podcast. Oh, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, How, what, you what can't else, beat that. What else could you possibly want? Yeah. Okay. Jonathan, that was fun talking about the two bills. We never actually said. We did not. That was the right. best part. We came up with this super witty name for this podcast, <laughs> The Two Bills. Yes, yes. Uh, that was fun talking about those It guys. was. Matt, I enjoyed it. And this is the Agony to Defeat podcast. And until next time.